0: rewarding but it's also a huge challenge. It's too easy to feel invisible. Please let's just talk about it. All the difficult things you think you have to hide. I'm Emily and this is the Voices of Academia podcast. Each month you'll hear a conversation with a different researcher released in fortnightly episodes. First you'll hear their story of mental health in academia. Then you'll learn how the experience was managed. You'll realise that actually, you're not alone. There's a global community of researchers that want to talk about how hard this is and how it could be better. Welcome back to Voices of Academia. I'm your host, Emily, a 3rd PhD student in Melbourne, Australia. Today we'll hear how academia has impacted the mental health of Sarita Nolan, then next episode, we'll hear how she's learned to manage. Sarita is a senior at the University of California, San Diego in the US. She's majoring in psychology with a specialization in human health. Very impressively for her career stage, Sarita leads two research teams exploring syndemic factors between methamphetamine use disorder and HIV, as well as universal preventive interventions in children under 13. Welcome, Sarita. Thank you so much for uh, joining me.
1: Thank you, it's my honor to be here.
0: <laughs> so I uh, I wanted to start with a couple of questions to sort of get to know you a little bit better before we shift gears.
1: Okay.
0: So, I mean, the first one, given we're recording this in the middle of a global pandemic, <laughs> how are you? <laughs> you know, that may
1: be the new loaded question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Okay, I'm, I'm taking 20 units. I got my eight undergrads, that I'm waiting for, for my research and making sure everything stays on timeline, which is kind of crazy. I'm applying for grad school. You know, it's a lot, but you know, it's a lot of hope too. So
0: I'm good. Overall,
1: I'm good. <laughs> <laughs>
0: very busy. But if you do have any downtime, which I really hope you do, is there anything in particular that you're sort of reading or watching or listening to at the moment that you're really enjoying?
1: Let's see. I like watching the Bachelorette. Sometimes my brain just needs a vacation. So I'll watch the Bachelorette. But then also like in a prior life before disability, I was really interested in becoming a medical doctor one day. So I still love medical shows like Grey's Anatomy. Oh, my God. Yes. The McDreamy surprise ending was phenomenal. <laughs> if you guys have not seen the second episode of Grey's Anatomy, you should watch it. It's amazing. So, <laughs> so yeah, I, I like my dramas and my reality
0: TV. So. Me too. It's a it's a good way to switch off from everything that's going on. And this one might be a little bit of a curveball for you, but what were you like as a child?
1: Ooh, as a child? Inquisitive. Like I had a 9 p.m. curfew to stop asking questions. Oh my god. <laughs> like, I'm like, mom, what about this? she's like, look, no, it's after nine. I'm not answering <laughs> So I held a list of questions and I would ask her questions <laughs> all day. And I love stories. I'd always like, tell me a story, tell me a story. She's like, Look, you've heard all of my stories. <laughs> so I yeah, love as that. you as Inquisitive and intelligent too. I in middle school I said I wanted to be a pediatric neurosurgeon. I realized that dealing with kids when they're sick is not the biggest problem. It's kids parents when their children are sick. I'm like, no, not not that section. Not that section. That's not that scenario. So and when I realized I could be a doctor without being like a doctor in a clinic that's when I really realized that research was a real track that I could go on to explore these unanswered questions about why we're so reactive about mental health. That, why can't we be proactive? Why can't prevention power really be harnessed? And yeah, I just get to ask why in 100 million questions as like an adult. So yeah. No more curfews on question my, time. No more curfews. Like, <laughs> people closest to me, don't not give me curfews.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and so that is a a super unexpected but easy segue into <laughs> into kind of what drew you into academia. But I I do before we sort of shift gears into into your, you know, mental health experience within academia. I did want to say to our listeners, so we at Voices of Academia, we really do want to display a a commitment to diversity and We are fully aware that we're all female and we all have had sort of quite similar experiences. So if you do listen to this and you feel like your experience isn't being voiced, Please do get in contact with us because we are really, really interested in hearing the whole variety of experiences that people have. So I will say that means that I, as a host, have a lot to learn. There are so many experiences that I, you know, don't know about. And so today I've given Sarita complete permission that if I accidentally, you know, say anything inappropriate, she has full permission to call me out. So my ego is on a shelf and I and I really just I really just want to learn.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that spirit of just wanting to learn. Like, I think that's the greatest really thing that we could ask for from our allies, for them to listen to us about the challenges and the struggles that we have, rather than speaking of what they've heard, but what we live.
0: Exactly. So hopefully I can give you a platform to sort of explain some of that today. In your information that you sort of provided to me before today, you indicated that there was a point when you dealt with quite severe mental health conditions Mm -hmm. and you took a 10 year break from your education to recover. So can, can I ask, was that, what were you doing at the point when you experienced that initially? Were you sort of in a role that was associated with academia or were you in another field?
1: So I'll flag the trigger warning for your audience as well of talks of suicide and abuse as well. So what happened was I was in community college. I was dual enrolled during high school, <laughs> in college as well. I was in college, in my classes, and I was going for nursing at that point. So I was kind of like not really in academia as like the field, but I was in higher education learning, and what really happened was that I was raped when I was 17 at my first job, and it took everything down this really unexpected path, and I feel like my path through academia, through disability advocacy, is marked by these really horrible points, like, I actually attempted suicide so many times over those 10 years, cut so many times over those 10 years. I saw some of the worst of our healthcare system. I really couldn't even deal with school because I was just, feeling. You know, like was trying to find a little more than a couple days. And being able to dream now for decades and for a career is just a blessing. And I found that the greatest gift of those 10 years was finding my passion. Because once I learned of uh, the, the genetic basis of the disorder that I had, I'm like, wait a minute, this could have been prevented. I've had these genes with me since I was born. And no one did anything until like, I was there attempting suicide. And after a race, and that's when you're going to start. It's like when a counselor says, I'm going to be there for you it's like they're already lying because they have not been there for you when you really needed them beforehand. So I found that to be the most infuriating thing that was hardest to deal with. And all I got was support for leaving school. I never really considered myself disabled at that point. It wasn't until I became physically disabled. And then I learned more about the disability community to really realize that disability isn't just Disabilities that as a kid you're told not to look or stare at, or not to go up and talk to the person and ask questions. It's the person that looks fine, too. That I feel like there's just so much education left to be shared about what is disability. Like, it's not just this medical model of if you have disability money because you're disabled from your government, whatever it may be called in your country, it's all about. How does your condition affect your life? If your life is affected by a health condition, whether it's emotional or physical, it's a disability. You may not be like on an SSI level, but I proudly am capital B disabled. I am proud to be a person with disabilities, to be able to be an advocate in this space. And yeah, it it was the hardest thing, but it really helped me find a pathway into Where I found my fit in academia, where I feel health policy is really this key to transforming how we consider mental health, both academically and outside our mental health over the course of our lifespan in the beginning of disability to really cope with the loss of who we saw ourselves as. Because I saw myself as an able person to be jump out of bed, go go for hikes, you know, do all the stuff I want to do. Like fiber bodies like. Are you sure we're getting up right now? I don't want to get up right now. It's like having an impetuous five-year-old all, all day long. It's like, I don't want to study anymore. I don't want to be in the chair anymore. Mommy, no! <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. It, it's like your body whispers to you when you're able things like, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty. But then when you're disabled, it's like, yo, I'm a help, help, help. It's like, OK, OK, I got it, I got it, I got it. Like And you have to learn how to live with those signals, with your body yelling at you of what it needs. And maybe I don't have control over meeting those needs sometimes. And that hurts. So,
0: yeah. Thank you for sharing. And this actually brings me to a point that I I wanted to bring up, is you asked me when we were sort of messaging on Twitter if I (laughs) view myself to be disabled. And I thought it was a really interesting question because I – never have. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I think there could be a lot of people in the audience that, that feel that way too. They do have an invisible condition that impacts their life in some way, but they don't necessarily view it as a disability and are still kind of trying to act in a way that, that they feel they should be capable of. And so I'd be, yeah, could you maybe touch on a little bit about invisible disability? And, and how you feel like that is linked to mental health?
1: I think invisible disability is much more difficult because it's like living with imposter syndrome. But it's like every day I walk outside, you don't see a person with disabilities. You see an able Black woman. That's what you think you see. And I can't do anything to change how I'm perceived. So it's almost harder on your mental health because when I park in a disabled space, I don't know what's what happens when I get out of that space because really there was a time at UCSD I parked near my lab in my handicap space closest over there, and this older white guy says you should leave that space for someone who needs it. You must have stolen that handicap locker from your mom. And I, I had you know my mom's healthier than I am, but <laughs> and I I told him way too much about my health conditions, and he was still there berating me about not needing that space because I didn't seem like, I needed that space. And like, you know, I am someone who needs this space. Walk the car, walk away. (laughs) And being invisibly disabled, it's almost like you have to overcome your own ableism of being, being that person who looks able, but accepting what reality truly is for you, how your body needs you to take care of it more, how you need a little bit more support. And we're taught to be so independent in our academic lives to do this, to just get on with it, to work 80 hours, to forsake everything. Who cares about your body? Let's just go. It's like, no, we don't just go. We we need to stop and restore and to respect ourselves. And sometimes it's hard in academia to really be disabled because it's not the norm to really show respect. To your body to show respect for times when you sleep, times when you eat. I feel like it's grieving consistently over that able body wish you had again, but that it looks like you have every time you look in the mirror at yourself. It's almost like that cognitive dissonance of, I know I'm disabled, but I don't look disabled. So I almost feel like it's easier to cope with disability when the to align <laughs> I, I don't know what being visibly disabled is like I will completely say that I don't know what it's like to go around broadcasting that you're disabled um. which is the difficulty of using a, an adult like a, like a wheelchair or cane but I know that there is that burden of always knowing that you aren't portraying who you are wherever you are with invisible disability. And that's the way that I feel. It almost feels like imposter syndrome as a person with disabilities. And yeah, and I just have to accept that it is my reality, no matter what anyone sees or does not see. It's my truth and I speak it.
0: And I imagine that's really hard, you know, to have people questioning you constantly and to have to keep pushing back against that, even if you are, you know, it can make you doubt yourself, I imagine. And we might touch a little bit on, you know, how to start accepting, you know, your whole self and everything that comes with Mm -hmm. that in the second episode. But I imagine that is probably a, a continuous struggle and, and has perhaps been quite a long journey. So I'd be really be interested in the next episode to talk a bit more about how, you know, how you approached that. (laughs) So, I mean, for our audience, would you be willing to open up about what some of those disabilities are for you? If there's Mm -hmm. anyone in the audience that's maybe struggling with a similar thing? Yeah.
1: I currently have fibromyalgia.
0: I have sciatica.
1: I have PTSD and yeah. And I just, yeah, I think that's my main ones. So the gastroparesis scares me a little bit because it's my newest disability that I was diagnosed with in February. And uh, sometimes seeing people talk about the feeding tubes and stuff like that, I'm like, i that it doesn't get to that point. But I try my best to manage my disabilities and that's all I can do.
0: And I mean, how do you... You know, that's I don't really know a lot about gastroparesis and it's probably outside the scope of of today, but just, you know, learning a new diagnosis in the middle of Mm -hmm. trying to cope with life and also with the academic environment. What is that like? You know, how do you feel you're impacted when you're trying to or how do you feel your mental health is impacted when you're trying to sort of juggle that?
1: Yeah, it's definitely special because gastroparesis basically means my stomach does not process food as fast as it should. So food sits longer. And I should be eating multiple times a day, many small meals, and <laughs> stopping and leaving the computer is one of the hardest things for me to do. <laughs> it's about making intentional choices. And I think the hardest thing for me is dealing with undiagnosed condition that I have with my muscles. It's not the fibromyalgia I was diagnosed with my gravis when I was 18 and UC Neurology did not believe the diagnosis. So they took away the medication that managed the condition. Like one of the doctors oh basically gosh. said, I don't believe you have this, but if you want, you could continue taking the medication. But the way you said it Made me scared to have him managing my medications. So I'm like, maybe it's not like that bad anymore. Maybe I don't need the medication. But two years later, I found out that I really did need the situation. And it really felt like I had a myocytic crisis where it just was really hard to breathe and make those muscles actually function. And since I didn't have the diagnosis, I couldn't see the neurologist in the hospital. Then I go deal with medical trauma in the office. And I still struggled to get the support I need and I think in a way it's harder to be undiagnosed because you have symptoms before you're diagnosed with any type of disability and I feel like that undiagnosed like there's a hashtag called NES void that I just learned about. it's no end in sight which is like this place where you kind of live in this void this limbo and yeah it's it's really interesting thinking about like the impacts of it and not being able to do anything to treat it because I have no support and the office that i need to call to get support freaks me out. I'd need to go to my primary to get another referral to go somewhere else. And I'm like, I don't have that kind of time. I'm trying to apply for grad school <laughs> and the applications yeah. are due in under two weeks.
0: Oh, good luck yeah (laughs) so yeah and I mean that's that's such an important point as well it's it's not just in society where you can face challenges you know when trying to learn to manage a disability I imagine it's it's you know even from the doctors themselves you can you try to get support and you can face barriers in that respect as well do you have any particular examples of sort of that strong memories of of that experience since you've been an undergrad
1: yeah like I think the having support the medical trauma was very hard and ultra rewarding it but it was like a two-hour appointment for an emg it was just a nightmare i was abandoned in the office and at universities they will give so much support talking about sexual trauma like if you're in a sexual situation and you feel uncomfortable just say no you can remember <laughs> consent at any time but I never knew it's that simple it's that simple but it's, it's also that simple in medical as well like I mean I was awake for the procedure I could have said no like so many times and I did not realize I could just say no when I felt like I was being abused in my doctor's office I didn't think about that like I gave them this benefit of the doubt on Democratic oath. They're risking no harm. Maybe they feel this is necessary. I'll get through this, and it's just been this traumatic way. Like it happened October fifth, and I had so many plans to do my personal statement in a well-paced, slow manner and get like lots of feedback and stuff on it, and it threw all the wrenches in so much that I don't even know how I'll be able to finish <laughs> my graduate so application after this thing happened. And there's no support or advocates for victims of medical trauma. There's nothing here. I actually had to have a meeting with my office that services students with disabilities, Carrot Sark, which is this resource center for sexual abuse victims, and RCAP, which is basically counseling and psychological services, to tell them how much I feel abandoned on this. It's just it's overwhelming and sad, and I'm still in the throes of feeling unsupported. And you know, I really appreciate campus leadership and their support and wanting to change the environment for students with disabilities and provide more support outside the classroom because all accommodations and accessibility are is support outside the classroom and to get into buildings. Disability is more than that to me. I'm not a, I'm not a visibly disabled student where, Handicap entrances are the end-all be-all to me, but it's about so much more being disabled. It's about being an underrepresented minority group. And I think disability is not normally seen as an underrepresented minority group. Numbers are missing on statistics for disabled students. And that's why support's missing, because if you never see us in your statistics and how our population grows, you never know the group you're failing. It's like, if I don't see it, maybe it's not
0: happening. Yeah. And actually that is a point that you brought up on the panel that I just watched. So and, and I can relate to this from a different perspective but just you mentioned that it's really difficult when you sort of look up the academic ladder and you don't hear people speaking about how disability impacts them at work and you you don't actually even know who's affected because there's this culture of sort of not speaking about it and and that mm-hmm. means that you don't really have that many role models and it's really hard for you to know you know what is it going to be like for me if I you know would like to progress to that level in my career
1: Uh, there's some really sad statistics around it too that I wish I'd mentioned while I was on that meeting but 26 percent of undergrads are disabled and well 26 percent of our population is disabled at least in the U.S. and 20 percent of undergrads are disabled but 11 percent of us are getting services maybe but 3.6 percent of tenured faculty are disabled like Mm. all these barriers hit us get it trying to get into grad school hit us at postdoc and then by the end, you barely have any representation of disabled people and tenured faculty and leadership. And it's like, don't say that. Don't talk about that. You know how bad mental health will hurt your career if you mention it or if you mention physical disabilities. Like, maybe they might see you in a different way. And it's actually kind of scary to think of talking about disability because I really don't have that many people to say, Yeah, it's okay if you talk about this or if you approach it like this way. Like disabled in higher ed is actually trying to like put together a program to help undergrads and stuff with their application. Even applications to undergrad as well. So it's just hard really just trying to navigate without seeing anyone. At least most students, you can look up to someone, you can easily find a mentor, but being disabled, there's no ease in that. You only have barrier after barrier after barrier that you hit that says, we're not disabled outside the classroom. And that almost feels like that's what impacts faculty because outside the classroom lies your career. So if there's no career support, which there's not, if there's no disabled undergraduate research programs, which they're not, (laughs) if there's nothing to really break down these barriers, these barriers will continue to decay our actual, like, representation as people with disabilities, and we can't help each other because we've been given no platform to really elevate our issues, no platform to really Mentor students without fear of losing your job or being seen differently. We shouldn't be disabled and live in fear and then live in fear of uh, facing racism and live in fear of being like the victim of feminism and like having male faculty members not see you the same. It's just the burden compound upon each other until you've got a brick wall staring you in the face going, yeah, I guess I'm not going to do
0: that work. It's a lot to deal with. And when one of the, the other panel members, so for anyone that's listening, there was a panel at University of California today. So our recording session got delayed a little bit, but it was great for me to see some of the students from the disability community and also the disability support program that's run there address a board meeting about some of the personal issues that they face and perhaps some of the adjustments that could be made to better support them. And one of the students... Yeah, he he made a really great point. And he was just like, what if the cure for cancer is locked in the mind of someone that has a disability and has been forced to drop out because there's not enough support for them? we're, we're missing so much perspective within mm-hmm. academic research because these different voices are sort of pushed out. And that one really, really got to me because I, you know, I think it's similar for people with you know any sort of difference that you have is an attribute right it's a different Mm -hmm. perspective you have you know things that are unique to your experience that you can contribute to research in the way that you think and uh, it it makes me really sad that Mm -hmm. that is still an issue
1: yeah like it's been 30 years here in the us since the passage of the ada and this is the first time we got a chance to even talk to the University of California Board of Regents. And for our listeners as well, like the meeting is actually available to watch in the history. It's live streamed to YouTube. So it will be there. And I find that what, are we going to wait another 30 years to get our chance in front of the regions? Are, are you going to wait another 30 years to make it accessible and more than that, to make a seen? Because without, Disability justice being seen in like racial justice, there's no social justice really.
0: And we, we will put that link in the show notes as well so that if you'd like to have a look at it. I found it really, really useful personally just to hear some of the personal stories of what different people go through because disability, and this was addressed as well, it's not one thing. Everyone has a different background, a different perspective And so different adjustments need to be made and it should sort of really be an individualised support process. But in terms of, I guess, your experience in terms of, yeah, combining disability and mental health, is there anything for someone like you or maybe for yourself a few years ago? Is there anything that you would say to that person?
1: Be your own best advocate. It's going through that process of self-acceptance and realizing that this is your reality. And even if you wish you weren't disabled at the moment, it doesn't change where you are in this moment. And being loving, being kind, and really finding a way to get the support you need to succeed and to thrive in your goals and to not let a disability you don't accept stand in your way let that disability not be the liability that higher ed sees it as, but allow yourself to change that disability into a capability. See the good that comes from it, because there's even this hashtag going around on Twitter called, my disability made me good at, and disability can teach you so much if you're open to learning the lessons, being a good ally to yourself, not going off of everything that you've heard but feeling your own experiences and understanding what your truth is and existing within the realms of that truth and understanding what you need and what you don't need to succeed and being willing to speak to that being willing to be like no i can't go to that meeting i don't feel well right now i just need to do this i will catch up on notes or whatever later I will do this when I have more energy. If you don't advocate for yourself, no one else will.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, such a great way, to, I think, to wrap up this first episode. So, <laughs> so that, that does wrap up today's episode of Voices of Academia. To you guys listening, listen, thank you so much. We're, we're new at this, but uh, we're going to learn along the way. <laughs> On the next episode, we'll hear how Sarita has learned to manage her mental health. I'm Emily King, and I'll see you next time. So that was Sarita. It's, It's only really now sinking in just how much she's been through, and she's an incredible woman. If you'd like to get in contact with her, she's available on Twitter at Nolan underscore Sarita. That's spelled N-O-L-A-N underscore S-Y-R-E-E-T-A. For information found in this episode, refer to the show notes or visit our website, www.voicesofacademia.com. If this episode brought anything up for you, there are mental health resources and emergency numbers available for various countries at www checkpointorg.com forward slash global forward slash this podcast was written hosted and produced by me emily with support from some very special people in my life you can find me on twitter at eking underscore spelt s-c-i for science but i'm part of the larger voices of academia team we have a website a twitter account at academic voices and also share stories in blog form with the option of them being anonymous If you like this podcast and want to hear more stories, please leave a review, subscribe, tell me what you think on Twitter and tell your friends. The podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major listening platforms. You can also follow the Voices of Academia blog and receive notifications of new posts by email. Just head to our website, www.voicesofacademia.com, to sign up. If you have a mental health or wellness story to share, We absolutely want to hear from you. Whether you're a team leader, research assistant, postdoc, student, ex-academic, or any other type of researcher, follow at Academic Voices on Twitter or visit our website, www.voicesofacademia.com, for details on how to share your story. It's time someone gave you a voice.